time for us to get started. We're going to be on page 10. When I say anybody else, that would include my wife. I told you she was listening to her brother last week, but she's got no excuse this week. I think she's going to come in uh, and endure me for this. Now, last week, you guys remember, we had a pretty, we had a pretty much capacity crowd, but I had that effect on people. You know, we'll try it one time, and then that's about that's about what we get. So, uh, welcome to those of you who are gluttons for punishment for coming back for the second week. And lesson two, page ten. First uh, week, last week, we looked at lesson one, which is we seek to be an intentional church. We talked about some of the intentionality that's involved in the structure of our church. But as you see on page 10, middle of page 10, there is our our vision, which is to be a healthy community of faith. But then that raises the question, what does that mean? What's What's a profile of a healthy church? So that's what today's lesson is about. Uh, a healthy church, top of page top of page 10. And as I go, as I said last week, if you want to stop me and you have any questions, please feel free to do that. Um, there weren't any last week, so but it's okay if there are this week. That'd be fine. Or catch me after or write me this uh, this week. I'll be happy to give you my email address. Top of page 10 then in your notebooks. Uh, this is the second of the four lessons designed to give an overview of our ministry and the rationale behind it. We saw last week we seek to be intentional this week to be a healthy church, next week to be a growing church. And when I say growing, I don't mean numerical. In fact, I'll talk about that here in just a second. I'm talking about spiritually growing and the things that we offer to help people spiritually grow. Uh, that'll be next week. And then the fourth week is a committed church. That's the name of the fourth week. And we talk about the commitments that we make to those who join our church and in turn, the commitments we mutually make for each other. So, that's what's happening over the next three weeks. First point on page 10, health produces growth. Our objective is to be healthy, not to grow. So, we don't, we don't set numbers. Uh, we seek to be what we believe the Lord wants us to be as a church. And then, all things being equal, if we are that, healthy things grow, all things being equal. Now, when I say all things being equal, you know, sometimes you might have, I've got lots of pastor friends who pastor in lots of different kinds of situations. Maybe in a rural area, you might have 500 people in your whole town. And if you've got 50 people there, you're doing pretty well, you know, with 500 folks. So that's what I mean by all. And that might be the only 50 folks you'll ever have. You know, some of those people die. Maybe they have children, but it kind of stays steady, right? Uh, All things being equal. Now here, when you're in a metropolitan area and you have highways and roads where people can get to you within, say, 30 minutes fairly easily, and you have well over 100,000 people who fit into that that category, then we do have that expectation that all things being equal, if you're healthy, then things will will grow. So I say that there, but that's our objective, to to be healthy. A vital or healthy church is marked by these three things, spiritual vitality, functional effectiveness, and then numerical or statistical growth. Now, here's why we say that. Acts chapter 6, you see it referenced there, provides a paradigm or a model for that principle, that spiritual vitality, functional effectiveness, then all things being equal results in this numerical growth. So let me explain why we say that. Some of you might be familiar with what's going on in Acts chapter 6. But in uh, Acts chapter 6, there's only one church in the entire world at this point, and it's in Jerusalem. Uh, it's going to soon start to expand to the outer regions, uh, but right now, one church in Jerusalem. 
And that thing, according to Acts chapter 2, there were 3,000 on the first day. Then Acts chapter 4, chapter 5, it extends to 5,000 men, not including the women and children. So this thing is just burgeoning and, 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 and blowing up. Uh, and an issue arose. When you come to chapter 6, it says, very first verse says, in those days the number of disciples was increasing. So in addition to the 3,000, now the 5,000, all of that, it's still increasing. That's what it says. But then it says, but a dispute arose. So the number of disciples is increasing. It's still moving forward, but now we got a potential problem, a dispute. What's the dispute? If you read that passage, it says that the Grecian widows, that's what it calls it, the widows with Greek background, were complaining that favoritism was being shown to the Hebraic widows, that is, the widows with Hebrew background in the administration of the benevolence that the church would would do. So why would there be these two kinds of widows, and why would one feel like they're being left out uh, from the other? Hey. (laughs) My wife, I was saying, you know, her brother's not here. She doesn't have an excuse to be in the auditorium. I don't know. (laughs) This is my wife, Kim. All right. So why would there be this uh, group, Grecian Hebraic, and why would they be feeling like the Grecian widows that they're being uh, discriminated against? Well, in Acts chapter 2, the reason that there were all of these Jews in Jerusalem was because there was a feast, an annual feast called Pentecost. And it says there that they gathered in Jerusalem, did Jews from every nation under heaven. Well, now they gather for Pentecost as they do every year, but this time they hear a different message. They hear this message about Jesus. And a number of them come to Christ. And having come to Christ, they also hear he's going to return. And guess where he's going to return to? And the Bible actually says this. Jesus said, I'm going to return to the place where I ascended, the Mount of Olives in in Jerusalem. So they hang around. (laughs) They normally go home, but they don't go home. So you've got the Grecian widows are the people from outside Jerusalem. The Hebraic widows are the people from the Jerusalem area. And they know everybody there, and they know the people in the temple, and they know all the stuff. So it's the Grecian widows who are the out-of-towners, and they're saying, hey, you guys are showing favoritism. You know, that kind of dissension has the potential to hurt the church, split the church. Churches do that kind of thing, unfortunately, all the time. So it says in Acts chapter 6 that the apostles who were the leaders of the church thought about what to do, and they said, you know, we've got our priorities of the word and prayer. That's what they said. And we really can't and should not leave those spiritual priorities to take care of uh, this. But it is an important thing that needs to be taken care of. And so let's appoint seven men from among you to take care of making sure this happens. And they did. And they give the names of the seven guys that they appointed. And they were, here's what's interesting about it. All of those seven have Greek names. So they chose seven guys, not from the Hebrew group, but from the Greek group, the one that was saying we're being discriminated against, to show that we're really going out of our way to be even-handed. And it says this proposal pleased everybody. And then it says in verse number 7, so the number of disciples continued to increase. And the word so is important. It's implying that, therefore, as a result of this good action that they took, instead of that impeding the growth of the church, the growth of the church continued. Now, that's where you get this principle then, spiritual vitality. This church showed that it had its spiritual priorities in place, the Word of God and prayer. 
But it also knew that it was important to be functionally effective. That is, we've got this ministry to carry out, and it needs to be carried out in an orderly way, in a fair way, and that's important. So we need to appoint people to do that. If you have a church, you can have a church that has one of those and not the other, and it will harm the, the growth of the church. You can have a church that's spiritually vital, but nothing runs on time. No functional effectiveness. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is, is doing. But you can have a church that runs like clockwork, and it, it's a well-oiled machine, but if it doesn't have its spiritual priorities in place, then who cares about it, Right? So you want both of those. And if you have both of those, like they had in Acts chapter 6, all things being equal, you have the result given in verse 7, the number of disciples continues to increase. So our church expects to grow, but we expect that simply because of this principle. But what we do is simply try to be that, spiritually vital, functionally effective, and then see what the Lord Lord does with it. All right, so what are the vital signs then of a healthy church? We've got seven of them. We had those listed for you back in lesson one, and I told you we would go through all seven of them in this lesson. So we will, with starting with being gospel-driven. Now, these seven are not in a particular prioritization other than the first one. Gospel-driven is first on purpose because that is priority. But then the rest of them are kind of randomly, uh, you could put them in other different order. But gospel-driven, the gospel of salvation by grace is the foundation, the formation, the stimulation for a healthy church. It's the glorious message that God's grace has overcome our sin through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, okay, so the, um, the gospel is a priority for our church. The thing is, what is that? Is that my parents... I don't know, I was I don't know. It sounds, yeah. like it, it sounds like a door. It does. Somebody no, beating on a door? Like, yeah. Like oh yeah. Yeah. Open it or something. Yeah. Like Our door's open. Yeah. Like to unstick yeah. it. Some college kids Yeah. That's you know what? It's a college. There is a college class next door. That explains everything. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Mark, for uh, trying to get that. I know I can't do it either, man. I can't shut that. I know it's got that weird gadget on it that I can't shut. All right. All right, gospel-driven. What church would say, no, we're not gospel-driven? I mean, every church would say that, right? So us saying it on paper here doesn't mean a whole lot because everybody pretty much would say that. Yeah, we we believe the gospel. We're driven by the gospel, assuming it's a Bible-believing church. So let me just take a few minutes to flesh that out a little bit. What does that practically look like, taking it off of paper and seeing it in real life in the church. One, one way that if you're gospel-driven it shows up is that you're a church that's willing to accept and truly accept all comers. Because the gospel's for everybody. So if the gospel's for everybody, then you as a church, we as a church, need to be intentional about making sure that we don't have unnecessary, unnecessary barriers to anyone coming to Jesus. Now, there are barriers to people coming to Jesus, right? People don't like what God has to say. They don't like the demands he puts on their life. They don't think they're a sinner, therefore they don't need you. You know, whatever. Those are the real barriers. And those barriers I can't help you with. I just got to, you know, tell you the deal and that's and, that, and see what the Lord does in your heart. But there can be unnecessary barriers. What kind of unnecessary barriers can you have? 
you know, when, when someone comes in and they want to learn of God, they need to be willing, they need to hear someone teach in a way that they can understand. Sometimes in our churches there can be a whole Christianese kind of thing that goes on. And it's inside language. We know the language if you've been around for a long time. But the outsider does not. And so you need to explain it in a way that they can, they can understand it. If you're really going to be gospel-driven, you want all comers, right? So I try to, I try to do that. We, try, we give you a Bible and we say it's marked at the, you know, the place because we assume not everybody knows how to find the book of Romans. Or, so there it is for you. you know, keep that Bible. We don't assume everybody owns a Bible. Those kind of things. Uh, another another thing is there not only can be this kind of inside language, but even things like a dress code. This used to be a thing in churches, and in some churches it still is. That you know, when I started working in the computer field years ago, every day I went to work, I wore a coat and tie to go into the office. And that was a dress code for most office environments. But then you know they had casual Fridays. Casual Fridays became casual Monday through Fridays. <laughs> And and that you know that's okay with me. But 20 years ago, when we started our church, we were still kind of in that you know transition a little bit, and we had to decide what we were going to do with that. And I told our our small group, I said, look, if we're going to plant this church, and we want to be a gospel-driven church, and we want people to not have unnecessary barriers, that can be one of those unnecessary barriers. But people, when they come in, they're going to look more to how you guys are dressed more than how I'm dressed. They, they sort of expect when people come into church, they sort of expect the dude up front to be a kind of a priest with a collar, you know, or something. So I, you know, I don't have a collar, but you know, if I got the coat on, nobody's you know put off by that. But if everybody in the congregation is dressed to the nines, is dressed, well, now you know you got the person who they don't even own a suit, they don't own a dress, whatever it is, and that is an unnecessary barrier. So I said, you know, why don't you guys just dress in a way that looks like. You intentionally came here, so don't look like you just rolled out of the rack. Okay, look like you you know you got dressed to come here, but outside of that, you know, don't try to. And it's just been amazing. We haven't had any kind of rule with that. Just over time, then if you look, you just see this mix of the way people, the way people dress. And so, just about anybody can come in, I think, and feel comfortable, at least with that, and not have that as an unnecessary barrier. Um, Another unnecessary barrier is that we Christians in the church don't talk enough about the fact that we as Christians struggle with sin. And so if you give the impression to the person coming in that nobody here struggles with sin, then I'm the only one. In fact, that's probably the reason they showed up. Something's going on in their life. They're struggling with life in a fallen world. You know, something's happened in their life, or they've got some habit going on, or they're going through a divorce, or, you know, whatever it is. And then if they see all these people who act like they have these perfect lives, that's an unnecessary barrier, because guess what? We all know that's not true. So then let's be truthful. And let's say we have this struggle. We sin this side of heaven. Thanks be to God, all the stuff I preached about this morning, right, is all true. But we, we struggle with sin, all of us. So you're not alone in that. So I said from day one, for 20 years I've said this, we want Community Bible Church to be a place where it is safe to be a sinner. 
doesn't mean it's okay to sin. It's not okay for me to sin. It's not okay for you to sin. But this is a place where it's safe to be honest about the fact that you are one. Sometimes in our churches, you know, we act like, you know, if somebody admits they have a struggle with sin, we look at them like, you know, I, I read about somebody like you. <laughs> but I've never actually met one. You know? <laughs> wow, a real-life sinner showed up. <laughs> in our church, you know. So, gospel-driven, there's a whole lot of that, you know, that the lingo, the dress, you know, we've got it all together. If you can break that stuff down, then people can come, they can hear God's truth, and then you ask the Lord, move on the hearts of people and bring them to yourself, okay? Vision motivated. I mentioned to you last week that uh, vision and mission are sometimes used interchangeably. In fact, back when I was doing my computer work, there was a period of time, maybe 25 years ago or so, where it really became the thing for everybody to develop their, you know, their mission statement, their vision statement. And so everybody had to come up with one. And so, so here's what everybody did. Churches did the same thing. You know, we didn't come up with what we're supposed to be. We simply put a label, a description to what we're already doing. So it's just, you know, okay, how do we do this? All right, that's our mission statement. Well, that's not really the way you're supposed to do it because... The way you're doing it might not be the best way. What you need to do, the reason these kinds of things help you is because they force you, they should, to step back and say, what are we supposed to be? And then let's conform what we're doing to what we're supposed to be rather than giving a label of what we're supposed to be to what we're already doing. So it was kind of useless if you were in the business world back then. People would put these things together and they stuck them on the shelf and nothing really happened. Churches did the same thing. And they would use vision and mission kind of interchangeably. For us, vision is what we are going to be, and then mission is what we're going to do because of who we are. And that's what's in those boxes there. So vision is to be healthy. We're defining here what a healthy church looks like. And then if we are that, then we carry out this mission of doing these three things, learning, loving, and living. We'll see how our attempt to help people spiritually grow fits into those three categories next week in in lesson number three. Now, as part of moving then this mission forward, it's been necessary over these 20 years that I primarily, because I was the lone staff member we had when we first started, and now we've added people to it, but it's still my job. It's actually my defined job to do two major things, preach and teach, and cast the vision for the church. Those two things. And I do that that vision piece of what are we going to do in the future, where do we need to go, in conjunction with the leaders we have. And I'll talk about our leaders under another point here in a little bit. So that's, that's part of my job. So what we did was, from day one, we said, this is what we want to be, this is what we want to do. And then every year, in order to advance that mission, every year, Uh, We lay out objectives for that year. These are things that we're trying to accomplish this year. Usually three to five. And on any given year, we will accomplish two or three. So if we put five out there, we almost never accomplish all five. But we always get some of them done. And then we just carry over the couple that we didn't do, you know, to the next year, right? So right now, our church has a 10-year plan. We are about three years into our 10-year plan. Our 10-year plan ends in the year um, 2027. We've actually designated a particular Sunday 
in 2027 when the, when the thing ends. And what I did with that 10-year plan is I just said, if God allowed, these, this is where our church could be in a number of areas. And I just laid out what those are. And every year, I read that 10-year, what the church could look like in 10 years. So in January, if you guys are around, you'll hear me do that. If you were around last January, you heard me, you heard me do that. I do it every January. And then I say, out of this stuff, we're taking you know, three or four of these this year, and we're going to try to do that. And as a result of that, just keeping it out in front of people, saying these are our objectives, it just helped us to, to move forward every, every year, to make progress in the Lord's work. So that's what we try to do if we're going to be a healthy church, to be vision motivated. Okay? Authentic worship is a third vital sign of seven of a healthy church. Now here are the principles. I'll go through these principles, and on the top of page 11, there are practices that flow out of these principles. So I'll kind of mesh, mesh those together, okay? And if you have any questions, let me know. First, the first principle from God's Word, and what should be obvious if we are theistic people, that is, we believe in God, that if you come together for worship, that first one should be obvious, that it should be God-centered. Worship should be centered on God. Now, that could look like a sort of duh, yeah, of course, and it should be, but in our day and age, it's not. It is not. Worship is centered on the players. Worship is centered on the stage, and they call it a stage. Worship is centered on lowering the lights and putting spotlights on the performers, and they're called performers. So you've got a stage, you've got lights, you've got performers. So who's this centered on? I mean, God gets, you know, makes a cameo appearance in this thing. You know, we, we sing about God, but this thing is centered, and it's centered on, on these people. And then out here in the congregation as we're singing, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but I, when I'm out of town or if I go to a conference, I'll, I'll watch this, and there's people standing out there, they've got their hands in their pockets, you know, and they're sort of, you know, and they're trying to, and they're mumbling a little bit, but, you know, it's these guys doing a riff on the guitar and or on the drum, and people can't really follow, but it's okay, because that thing is really cool what those guys are, what those guys are doing. It's just sort of your spectator. And who's it centered on? And why is it dark out here, by the way? Because we don't want to see you. In, in all seriousness, biblically speaking, when God's people sing, Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3 say that we are singing, making melody in our hearts, teaching and admonishing one another. There's actually something we're doing for each other when we sing. Together, we're singing to the Lord, and because we're doing it together, there's an encouragement that comes out of that for each other. But the way we've done this is we've kind of tried to mimic a rock concert. And the ambiance and all of that is, is that. So dark for the congregation, and we go, now, nah, make it as light as you can. So you got the big window giving us some light. you got the lights on. I want every light on. I want every face to be seen. And we want every voice to be heard. And the guys who lead it, they know what their job is. Their job is not to go off and show off. And they could. They're really good. 
But that's not their job. Their job is to facilitate us sing. And if they do that, then they've done their they've done their job well. And that's just one aspect of worship, an important one, music. But you could think of others that are have to be intentionally God-centered. Okay. If they're going to be God-centered, it means secondly, worship is going to need to be word-centered because. How are we going to know what God likes in worship? How do we have any clue what God likes? And the attitude today seems to be that, you know, look, religion's kind of fallen on hard times. Fewer and fewer people are going to church. Whatever you've got to do to rope people in, do it. And God will just be thankful. God's just happy to have some people show up. And I got news for you. Nah, he's still the same God. He's always been. Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, and verse 28 says, Hebrews 12, 28 says, Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship God acceptably. And now I'm going to finish the quote. Let us worship God acceptably. What does that imply? That it's possible to worship God how? Unacceptably. But like nobody thinks about that. It's acceptable if we like it. But we're not the number one, we're not the number one player here, God is. So you put intentional thought from God's word. What does God say he likes? What is and so you want to know what God is like, and then in turn what God says in his word he likes. And you Put your worship service together accordingly to highlight to highlight that. So I said I'd finish the quote. So since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship God acceptably. And then it says this, in reverence and awe. So is that what you see in our churches? Reverence toward God? You know, it's a lot of frivolity, honestly. A lot of, okay, I'll get off it, but don't... No, you already got me started. It's your fault, okay? <laughs> Word-centered, which in turn means it must be regulated. When I say regulated, here's what I mean. Coming out of the Protestant Reformation over 500 years ago, there was something that developed called the regulative principle. And the idea was is they're seeking to reform the mostly corrupted church that had added all kinds of extra-biblical and some unbiblical things to worship. They said, you know what? When we come together to worship, we don't have the right to add stuff that God doesn't say in Scripture. So we're only going to do those things in our when we gather as God's people that God says to do. So the little service that you guys were just in for an hour and 15 minutes, the components of that service are all in the New Testament. So it's on purpose. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. But it's what God says He likes. Okay? So He want, He says, He talks about a time to pass the hat. That's my paraphrase. But the reason, you know, we collect the offering is because God says to do that on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 1. Do that on the first day of the week. That's why we do it. On the Lord's day. First day of the week. I mentioned Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5. We come together, we sing together. So that's that's why we do that. Preaching. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. 
preaching is spoken. In Second and Second Timothy chapter four, preach the word. Paul says to Timothy. First Timothy chapter five, public reading of scripture is supposed to happen. And then First Timothy chapter two, prayers are to be made publicly. So we have. I get up and pray, we do the offering, we have the preaching, we have the, the music, we have the scripture reading. Because all those things are, are part of it. Uh, that's what we mean by regulating. And we don't go beyond that. And that's, that's what we do. Uh, and then you might say, well, where do the announcements fit in? And that's a good question. And guys, people have struggled with the announcements. And I have a book called Worship in Spirit and in Truth. And the guy makes a really good case for if you do the announcements properly, that those can be expressions of something that God says to do when you come together, and that is fellowship together. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 says, do not give up meeting together, but encourage one another. So there's a one another component to us coming together. And so that's actually a big part of why we do that, is to say this is the stuff that we're doing together so that you, so that everybody's informed and, and as many people as possible can be involved. All right, fourthly, worship is sacred. Sacred means set apart. And so what that means then for worship is what we do on Sunday morning is not exactly like everything you do the rest of the week. It is true that worship is supposed to happen on the part of a Christian seven days a week, not just one hour during the week. I grant that. But that worship that happens six days a week and outside of the gathering of God's people is what's called worship in the broad sense. That's just you know us worshiping God because we're giving Him praise for everything that happens during our week, and we're trying to do it in a way that honors Him and all. And that's a form of worship. I grant that. But when we gather, that's what's called worship in the narrow sense. And that is the Bible teaches. That's a time when God meets with His people in a special way, and He has described the things that He wants done. Worship is corporate. Corporate sounds very. Um, Institutional. That's not what I mean. I mean by that congregational. Worship is congregational. So I talked about the music and how the music should involve everybody, not just a few people. So it needs to be done that way. So it needs to be congregational. Um, for too many people in our day, gathering for worship is what one author described as this. It's, it's individual worship with other people around. And I remember reading that and going, yeah, that's exactly the way many people think of it. It's really individual worship with other people around. And in fact, it would be kind of good if there weren't so many of you other people around so I could get my worship in. That's kind of the way people do it. And you think about, look, if you if you are a, an eye closer, you know, when you're singing, it's okay with me. I've got my back to you. You can do what I can't see what you're doing, Okay. But the guy in, in the book, he made the point, he said, that's part of the reason that people do that, because you're trying to shut people out, and you're having your moment with Jesus. But when we come together congregationally, it's not our individual moments with Jesus. It's our collective time with Jesus. It's congregation. It's us. One of the reasons every week when I do the pastoral prayer, at the end I say, and all of God's people said, is to emphasize what I'm talking about. This is all of us. We all believe this. So here's an opportunity for us to say that. Now, when I say all God's people, that turns out to mean 50% usually. <laughs> but, you know, some days I hit 70%. I don't know. But I do it on purpose. 
to emphasize this idea. It's not just me having my moment with, with Jesus. Now I'm going to hit on something here. If you disagree with me on this, it's okay. because It's not a dogmatic matter for us. But you notice that our leaders don't lead in a way that encourages individual, individualistic expressions. So a lot of places it's, you know, the Spirit's moving on me, you're doing your thing, I've got my hands up, you've got, you know, you're swaying, I'm doing whatever, everybody's doing their thing. There's nothing sinful about that, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that. But we want to emphasize this us-together idea. So we don't encourage, if somebody, if you're a hand raiser, nobody's going to carry you out, okay, if you do that. You notice there's not a lot of individual amens. A lot of churches, you'll do that again, and I appreciate the sentiment when, when people do that. It's, and it's not sinful. But in Scripture, did you know every time they did the amen, it was all God's people saying It wasn't just somebody. So we need to think about in our individualistic culture, kind of breaking down the individualism when we come together and doing this corporate. And then finally, worship is holistic meaning. You could spell that W-H-O-L, the whole person. And so worship should appeal to the mind, the will, and the, the emotions. Practices that flow out of that, quickly top of page 11, we need to seek to extol and emulate the character of God in word and deed, accurately communicate and apply the word, utilize that regulative principle I told you about. We'll seek to be guest-sensitive, but not guest-driven. So you see how we try to do that and engage the whole person, mind, will, and emotion. All right, fourth of the seven, effective preaching. That point used to say powerful preaching, but I changed it to effective preaching because when people think of powerful preaching, they think of powerful preachers. And in evangelicalism for centuries, we've had too much emphasis on personalities. And churches are built on personalities. And so you've got some charismatic personality who's happy to be out front and be the star of the show, just to be perfectly blunt. And the person can kind of wow the crowd and all of that, and that's called power... For a lot of people, that's powerful preaching. But listen, uh, if you were to read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul says there, I'm paraphrasing, on purpose, when I came to you, I did not come to you with eloquence. And I know that's what you wanted because the Greeks loved oratory. He says, I didn't give that to you. I I purpose to know among you nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, he says. So that the results of my ministry might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. So the power should be in the Word of God, not in the preacher. Effective preaching, then, that has the desired effect, that's what we're saying, then recognizes that that it's the word that's powerful. It's the gospel that's powerful. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16. We saw a couple weeks ago. Because it is the power of God. It's not that Paul's powerful. It's that Paul's message is powerful. Okay? So we preachers kind of need to get out of the way and not let our personalities overtake the importance of the message. And as well, I say here that Effective preaching, designed to have the effect, means you want to apply what you preach. 
you're not just trying to inform, but you're also saying, here's what we need to do with those, those truths. Here's why. Look at the middle of that. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, you've got these four things, teaching, that is doctrine, rebuking, that is convicting, correcting, training in righteousness, those four things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training. The Bible does those things, but those are not ends in themselves. Doctrine is not the end. Teaching is not the end. The end is that you're thoroughly equipped for every good work. And if you don't get that, then you'll preach and you'll inform people and they'll become Bible trivia buffs, but nothing's changing in our in our lives. So that's what we mean by effective preaching. Servant leadership. That is, a healthy church has leaders, thank you, has leaders who are servants. That means that they don't care about title. They don't care about position. They care about serving the Lord by serving His people. If you're going to be a healthy church, you better have that. I could tell you stories that I've experienced personally, that I know of other churches that have experienced, where you get leaders who don't fit that profile, you're in a world of hurt. So how do you get that? How do you get leaders who are servants. Well, you know, God spilled some ink on this. He wrote long portions of Scripture in 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, saying, here are the qualifications. And he gives very explicit qualifications for pastors and deacons and deacons' wives in those passages. But unfortunately in our churches, we don't pay a whole lot of attention to them. If a guy says, I want to be ordained and go in the ministry, we ordain. And we don't do enough vetting. Does he meet the profile of Titus 1? Does he meet the profile of 1 Timothy 3? Those of you that have been in church for a long time, I'd be willing to wager, if I were a betting man, that you have never seen a church say to someone, hey, we don't think you're qualified for pastor. Maybe you have, but I haven't. So except here. We've, had, we've done that a couple of times. We've had young men come, going to seminary, they say, this is what we want to do. And we say, okay, we're going to evaluate you for that and whether or not you fit this, this profile. And, you know, we're very kind to them, of course, and all of that, but we're trying to do them a favor. We're trying to do the body of Christ a favor with that. So, our church is very careful about who becomes pastors and who becomes deacons. They've got to meet that profile. In our bylaws, which you have a copy of in the, back, in, in the back of your notebook. In our bylaws, it talks about the qualifications for deacons. And it says there that we have a, a training process for deacons. Any man in our church can participate in that, that training. And out of that, some of those men will become deacons. Not all of them. But they will all benefit from taking the training. One of our other pastors teaches that on a regular basis. So out of that, then, we get guys who meet the qualifications, who've been with us for a while, we've seen their life, we've seen their family life, uh, all of that. When somebody gets nominated to be on our leadership team, we take the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 for them and their wives, and we have a questionnaire 
based on those qualifications. And we give that questionnaire to people in the church who have served with them. And we say, fill this out. Now, they do it anonymously. The person who was nominated doesn't see it, doesn't know what they said, right? People in the church who have served with them. And then we give it to people outside the church who work with them. Why? Because you can be one thing at church, right? So we get this thing filled out and we say, this person's been nominated to be in leadership at our church. You know that person. You work with them. Would you be willing to fill this out? Here's a self-addressed stamped envelope. Send it back to us. And they send it back. And man, you, you have never read anything more gratifying than to see non-Christian people say, this is one of the most uh, honest, hard-working men of integrity I've ever met. When you've got that, you got something, right? And so we do, we do the same thing with the wives. And we send outside with wives. So we've got eight on our leadership team. All of them, all of us have had to go through that kind of vetting. And I just tell you, I just am so thankful for all seven of them and their wives. And God willing, we'll add more like them in the years ahead. Okay? Dynamic discipleship, bottom of page 11. Seventh of the, or sixth of the seventh. And what I explained there is that too often in our churches, the way a person is discipled, that is the way they grow in the Lord, is by osmosis. Most people that I have talked to in most of my church experience, which goes back to me being an infant, my experience is churches expect people will grow in the Lord just by hanging around. And the truth is, if you hang around for 30 years, you'll get the idea. You'll start to learn where the books of the Bible are. You'll start to hear enough preaching. You know what the, what the gospel is. And, you know, those kinds of things. So you'll, you'll get all that. But it takes 30 years. And that's if you hang around for 30 years. So going back to my computer, you know, background and my mind just being kind of sequential and I like to see stuff done in order, I admit part of this emphasis is just me personally, I admit that. But if you look at your New Testament, you look at the ministry of the Apostle Paul, the longest period of time he spent in one city was three years. And that was in the city of Ephesus. When you get to Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, after spending three years there, here's what he says. I have declared to you the whole counsel of God. Three years. Everything. Now, you say, well, they had Paul. <laughs> True. They had Paul, you got me. Okay? So we're at a huge disadvantage here. Okay? And Paul says, I spent, I mean, he spent like every day, night and day. He was with these people intensely for two years. Okay? It's all true. But have you ever thought of this? We've got major advantages that those guys did not have. Not one of them had a complete copy of the Bible. Not one. Nobody. The Bible's still being written. Paul's writing his letters, right? We've all got copies of the Bible. We not only have copies of the Bible, we've got material, discipleship material that people have written now to help you kind of get a jump start on this. So, putting all that together, here's what I say. All things being equal, in three to five years, you can move somebody from being converted to Jesus to established and growing in their faith in three to five years. If you have an intentional process to do that. And we do. And we'll talk about it next week, okay? And then the last thing, last but not least, I told you they're not in sequential order, is 
on page 12, intercessory prayer. Allah, what we were saying in the first hour about the gospel being designed for God to get all the credit so that no one can boast, God desires and deserves the credit, the praise, the glory for everything He does. So, if you have a 10-year plan, church, then that 10-year plan needs to be prayed about. So that those objectives that you have each year, and you're asking the Lord to help you accomplish those, and then if you're able to accomplish two or three or four of those, who gets the credit for that? When it goes forward in prayer, God's the one who gets the credit. And that's what God, as I say, desires and deserves. Okay, So a healthy church is all seven of those, and by God's grace, that's what we are endeavoring to be. Okay? You guys have any questions? Uh, it was a combination. You guys had a double whammy. Right? You got me putting you to sleep, and you got the heat putting you to sleep as well. I'm going to blame it mostly on the heat, but go out into the cool hallway. Thanks for enduring. We'll see you next week.